Hi everybody. Thank you very much for being here today with us. Me and Soya are, are here to talk about a little bit about what is inclusive design and especially what is compassion from a Buddhist perspective, since we are both practitioners. But more, more about how this has entangled in our in our education as inclusive designers and how through during our masters and while we've been working together and doing our own thesis or MRP projects, we have understood how these two subjects are interconnected. How how compassion uh, in in its in all its textures is deeply rooted in all the, the methodology and the theory that is in inclusive design. So um, I'll start by introducing myself for those who don't know me. I'm Tania Villalobos. I've recently finished my master in inclusive design in OCAD University in Toronto, together with Soya. And uh, one of my interests was uh, introducing compassion in the process of designing for in, in the health sector. And now uh, I'll leave you, Soya, to introduce yourself, to talk a little bit more. Thanks, Tanya. Um, I'm Zoya, and like Tanya, I just finished the Master's in Inclusive Design at OCAD University. I spent 10 years as a graphic designer and art director, and I went into inclusive design to find a way to incorporate more social impact into my work as a designer. And my interest there, what came out of my two years was um, basically spending a lot of time looking at how to introduce creativity and creative thinking into areas that don't necessarily allow it. And so I focused a lot on uh, the Caribbean where I'm born and raised and yeah, that just kind of sparked a whole new project. Yeah, so um, like like we were talking recently, me and Soya, we, we decided to do this conversation because it, it, it was one that started, like the post said, when, two years ago when we started uh, understanding what was inclusive design, we started sharing and comparing ideas of what was compassion, like it's in its root, in its theoretical root, especially from a from a perspective of a, the Buddhism uh, theology, and we we started realizing that that where we were hearing our teachers talk, it was basically the same thing, and that is why we started we decided to start this topic with this conversation. So I would like just to, to talk about a little bit what is compassion and then I'll leave Soya to, to define what is inclusive design. So maybe we can start by, by seeing its differences and its similarities. Yeah. So I, I, I would like to first quote uh, Christina Feldman, which she's a neuroscience and she's been working in the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education uh, the center for in Stanford University. So there, together with Dr. James Doty, she defines compassion as a multi-textual response to pain, sorrow, and anguish that includes kindness, empathy, generosity, and acceptance. 
the strands of courage, tolerance, equanimity are equally woven into the cloth of compassion. And, and above all, compassion is the capacity to open to the, to the reality of suffering and to aspire to its healing. Some other, uh, going more into the Buddhism uh, practitioners, uh, uh, like one view of the Mahayana Buddhism is the Mahayana Buddhism is deeply rooted in compassion, which it's uh, the reason of its uh, theology or the root of it is aspiring to have enlightenment in beneficial for all the sentient, sentient beings. So uh, the essence of compassion is uh, is love but uh, uh, love as a verb, as taking action to recognize the physical, material, and psychological suffering of others and put yourself in the, in the skin of the other and try to heal it. Yeah. So that is like, from, from one perspective, the compassion, I don't know, so yeah, what do you think about this and how, what is like inclusive design and how does it, interrelate. I want to touch on two things. So first, when you were saying about compassion is like spot on, it's basically the way that we understand it in Buddhism is feeling with and through something with someone else. Um, and if we were to go deeper into the, into the Buddhism rap, um, like whole, it's this practice of abandoning your self-cherishing and exchanging self with others. Like you give up power so that you can help others. It's not about that. It's not about controlling others or a situation, but being with them through it. Um, and then in, pra in practicing, we talk a lot about generating bodhicitta, but mm -hmm. that, yeah. Um, which should I explain that? Yeah. Bodhicitta is um, a spontaneous wish to attain enlightenment, motivated by great compassion for all sentient beings. Um, and with it is accompanied the falling away of um, the attachment or the illusion of an inherently existing self, basically. Um, because I am you and you are me, basically. Um, and then with inclusive design is like, well, we define it in our education as uh, a methodology that considers the full range of human diversity with respect to ability, language, culture, gender, age, race, um, any form of human difference. So as inclusive designers, we are looking for any pockets of society that has any kind of exclusion and we we are motivated to design or redesign that product system or service for more inclusion basically yes yeah, so it seems like uh in that that definition the the interesting part is like how to do this right how how do we design with compassion meaning exchanging ourselves for mm -hmm. others and in inclusion inclusive design is like with respect for all the diversity mm -hmm. so that was for me like very interesting uh 
to learn these methodologies that were inclusive and like the way it is translated to design the the compassion part of what you're talking about was in in co-design or designing with and for a community understanding that it was in, that it is impossible like where compassion tell us that you can exchange yourself for other what what when you need to design for others we we truly understand and have the humility to understand that we are not in that in their feet 100 mm percent -hmm. so we need to moderate our voice and put them in charge and bring their acknowledge their experience and their knowledge in certain circumstances or for designing a service or a product giving space for the user's knowledge mm -hmm. and designing with them so that's like uh how i would unify this compassion and inclusiveness it's through the process where you can find these very interesting entanglements yeah so uh in terms of process one that i like to use um is empathy building and we can use a process called design thinking so i use that a lot in my research and design thinking is essentially an it's an iterative process of uh, finding problems and finding, trying to uncover the solution from the point of view of the user. So the five-step process is define, empathize, um, ideate, prototype, and then evaluate. Um, so I really like this process because I find, you know, in my research that it's very accessible and it can be applied to so many things. So like even non-designers can adopt it if you teach it to them so they have the ability to um feel like they too can be inclusive within a, their design with, even though they're not designers and i think that's really it's really powerful to give people that agency but just by giving them a tool that they can work with and they can do just about anything with yeah, so in my case, we're talking about methodologies. While I was um, researching uh, what methodologies were inclusive in the area of health, and we need to understand, like especially, I was um, my research was here in based here in Mexico, so I had I had to to understand like a lot of uh, or or implement a lot of system thinking into it, and I I I, I believe that one perspective, one compassionate perspective in the area of design is system thinking and understanding that it's like a translation, again, of this putting yourself in the in the, in the other shoes. And when you brought it up into a whole system that can be a hospital or a school, then you need to see the perspective or all, all, all the users or all the staff all the family members, everybody that is involved in the system. And, and that, that, then that starts to be complicated, right? Yeah. So that's why I think theory is very important. So like you say, uh, design thinking is really super important. And I, in my case, I used experience-based co-design, EBCD, which was, was really, really interesting to uh, see how they they interlap and they take 
uh, a lot of importance in emotions. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's this really interesting book or where I think the experience-based co-design is really well explained and put into practice, which is uh, bringing user experience into the health uh, improvement by Paul Bate and Glenn Robert. And they, what they explain is like it in, in no way, and I think that that's uh, that has to be said in any participatory design or co-design. In no way you want the the user to become an expert designer. Right. It means more like uh, giving access to the designer about the user ex all the experience that the user is having, yeah. but not not only through like a, a brief, but really inviting the user to in becoming part of the designer. And sometimes when talking about marginalized communities, make them lead the project, right? So in, in, in the, in, for the health sector, experience-based co-design has had a lot, a lot of well, very well results because it, in, it enables the, the users in this case, they can be patients and the staff, which in my case were nurses, they, they are able to design together and be part or create. And also sometimes even ask the questions. Mm -hmm. What is missing and who is missing in this project? Like to, to start that conversation with the user and continue, like you said, in the process of, of uh, when you start a prototype to evaluate it, constantly ask yourself who is missing, what is missing. And as designers, never get rigid or yeah. ne never get too, too attached to yeah. any prototype or any design because yeah. uh, because that won't benefit the whole project or yeah. the user. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, because you're just the facilitator, not the controller. And that just loops right back around to compassion and how to affect real change, you don't need power, you need compassion. You exchange yourself with the others. When you give up power, then you actually have it. When you try to have power, you don't have it. So, yeah. yeah, that that's exactly like in my in my, in the, my beginning as a as a graphic designer as a as a communicator I was I struggled with this like I, I say it and I, I am still struggling it it seems like I, I I need I'm constantly in this in this place where I need to defend sometimes what I yeah. what I've done and I'm, I I sometimes feel like it's a part of me and detaching from that can become quite a problem sometimes. Yeah. And what I think that sometimes is like, what helps sometimes is like, uh, and, I, and I heard this in, in a talk from Jutta Terviran, that is the, the director of, of the Institute, uh, the Inclusive Research Center. She said that always include your users from the start before you get. Yeah like not just to evaluate a prototype later on but from the beginning and i think that that's a way to from the beginning uh, loosen loosen up and don't fall into hierarchy yeah right do you think i'm gonna just throw a question in here <laughs> please do <laughs> do you think that that is a possible limitation of 
visual communication or graphic design because coming from a graphic design background now i'm very efficient in communication so forth um but sometimes change requires more than communication like and in a commercial sense in the role of the graphic designer we can be so far removed from the social problem that we don't have that ability to to maybe impact and and in a way the having to defend oneself like or defend the work it almost seems like that might be just a, a limitation of the discipline i'm not sure yet how graphic design cannot be that way yeah for sure i i I was thinking while you were asking this question, you in the beginning were saying how uh, part of compassion is accepting that there's not an intrinsic identity in anything. Yeah. So that is not something we are learning with graphic design school. <laughs> so then even our teacher starts telling us like this typography is bad. This That's typography true. is not nice. Or we start like adding subjective um, Sub subjective uh, or adjectives to things and this can apply to anything like I don't want to get into any topic of racism or everything but but we do we, we start we, we label things mm -hmm. and as graphic designers we are taught to become um, to become maybe sometimes more ju judges or ju we start like judging based on our eye or, or only on one sense which is the visual one you know yeah. as graphic designers yeah. and then we forget that there is no that that is relative to the mind that is experiencing right yeah for, for me that that typography from a mexican woman from that with a background in design might be a typography that is has this or that or that but that that adjective is is not anywhere in the intrinsic identity of any design yeah, because it it doesn't inherently exist, <laughs> which is the emptiness of, of everything. <laughs> that's the phenomena of life. <laughs> Nothing inherently exists. Yeah, exactly. So if 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 I if I design that way rigidly and get attached to any of my designs, then I don't. I'm not becoming this compassionate facilitator of knowledge and experience. Yes. So, yes. so I think that. In that way, is the practice that as designers we should have in in empowering the users, empowering the community we are working with. Maybe it's uh, indigenous people. Then, do we always see them as collaborators, or do we see them as we are teaching them, or like patients? Sometimes, in what I came across uh, doing design in a hospital, her, uh, the patriarchal patriarchy way of of, of uh, doing medicine sometimes doesn't give much space for change or for or for you uh, listening how the the patient or the user is experiencing things yeah so that, that brings me back to the experience-based co-design which is which i was saying that is really rooted into emotions and it it uh, provides in its methodology the uses of touch points that are uh, emotional entanglements or where the user has uh, interacts with the design emotionally and to analyze that throughout its journey to really 
put yourself in others like that's not not how it's explained in the textbook but it, it could mm -hmm. be uh, uh maybe like a buddhism design <laughs> if you put it that way without yeah. even knowing right yeah that's very very profound <laughs> <laughs> it is i think i still am trying to figure out myself my day-to-day -day creative practice the balance maybe it is this a balancing act of how do i design to lead like design because i am the designer within a visual communication sense but allowing others to lead that design because it's because you know as designers like as graphic designers a lot of people who are not graphic designers <laughs> like to tell us how to design <laughs> and then it doesn't quite look right um, <laughs> so that's a balancing act that i'm still trying to figure out but one of the most interesting things i think in my creative practice right now is that because I work within publishing and I work on books, I have the challenge in front of me as well. Maybe it maybe it's an opportunity, not just a challenge, but to learn how to be more inclusive within visual representation. And that's everything from not just um, uh, the, having the right physical representation of person to, to a community, but how I go about the process of including those people and bring them into the fold into this whole other world um, to tell the appropriate story and it's it's a real challenge when um, you meet systems that are like robust and already existing and you have to try to slow that system down to get it to work more inclusively and more holistically, but hopefully I will figure it out. <laughs> no, for sure you will. And and on that subject, and one thing that I, that I find that is like interesting is that like talking about those those kind of systems, um, I think that it's something that, that helped me a lot and in my research and was having that vocabulary to 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 name it and to understand it right so sometimes like when we start a project that is inclusive and that we want to to, to use uh, uh inclusive methodologies and our if, if if it will be with a with a client or it's just our research and when we need to when we are talking to the users and the community we want to represent or work with i think that the correct terminology or i think that's where where I found more help in thus creating those like or slowing down those robust systems that right. sometimes already have some marginalize, marginalizing problems that they can be even uh, or very very profound or just very subtle. Mm -hmm. So so what I what I, in the beginning what worked for me was having the correct like vocabulary and explaining it in in a sense that it was like in, in my case that I was talking, uh, working with children and nurses. Yeah. So it was like a, a two way vocabulary, mm -hmm. but I, I did not want it to, to divide it. I wanted it to be the same, like the same way I talked to the children, talk to the nurses. 
So this can this comes to my second to my second point that I wanted to make about this. So one of my my uh, area of opportunity was that I was not led by the ethics board by the REB interact with the children. And at the, and at the beginning, again, I I reacted in this sort of way that that why am I not allowed to if I am a researcher or whatever, right? And it was like one of the most and the best uh, I think teachings I have had was to understand the the importance of a multidisciplinary team. Yeah. Well, I I did have to work with a psychologist because I was not the expert in emotions or handling. Uh, deep deep emotions that could arise in whenever we are uh, doing participatory design or co-design or whatever ethnographic uh, research we're doing mm. that involves working with with communities that are uh, that are endangered or are uh, in whatever way have been mar previously marginalized or whatever so that was one thing that, that was important for me like multi taking taking experts into your team and understanding that for sure in the first workshop working with with collaborating with with children i, I realized that I, I was i would have not done it correct like it, i would not i would start my my like designer point of view and so i think that was like a big lesson for me that and it was good that they shut me up and say you can't talk <laughs> I think for the best of the research to, to put me in a corner and say you just observe. And that was like I, I think I think that design inclusive design taught me is like just observe. That's yeah. That's that's you know, and, and I struggled in the beginning and then I was so relieved and it was beautiful to see to for me to, to teach the psychologist was was inclusive design and for her to teach me and then the children share us their experience and then design together mm -hmm. and that was something that I, I was really happy to learn and still learning and uh yeah i think it's a struggle because sometimes it's hard to let go yeah <laughs> like yeah. for me so that's going deeper into your compassion yeah 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 Sure. So is that what like, is that what you say that's what drives you socially? Like, what are your branching on from that? Like, what is what are your values and your interests? In, I went deeper insight into like you and the type of work that you want to do moving forward after this project you've done. For, for me, um what attracted me uh, to be very honest I, I really wanted to see uh communication compassion and crisis like in the state of crisis like i was really driven down on like of course compassion is compassion is important and whatever but what about when you are sharing the suffering of thousands like is the cause the cases of of nurses or doctors of health, health practitioners like now in this pandemic we, we see it every day they are in a in an emotional crisis every day so i really wanted to to see that in action why to, to because to understand to to being able to understand it to understand how how compassion and communication was first of all to see it to understand it in in action 
which yeah. was why I was uh, driven to the oncology pediatric ward. And uh, that, that was one. So I, I think I do, from, I, I do want to do more experience-based co-design here in Mexico, because from my knowledge, uh, this was the first one that, that has been uh, done in an academic way. For, for sure, I, but it was like a very superficial, like, so I, I think we could go deeper, deeper into, into this practice. And maybe not that I only want to concentrate in, in the health sector, mm-hmm. but I, I am really deeply moving by, by the people that work in crisis situations and how communication and compassion entangle there, what happens, what, what, what arises and how this systematic, uh, systematic thinking works there. Like it's, it's a, a, a whole system there. Mm-hmm. We have many, many things. And what, what, where I focus my, my research or my energy is in the emotions that arises. Yeah. Which this is not me. This is experience based co-design. Like that's exactly what, what has been done in the past and that for me is really interesting because uh, uh, emotions we it's like a, a way of understanding what makes us human in a way right yeah. like humanity in us and how we interact in that yeah. and the crisis is like where we can see them changing fastly yeah so that's me that <laughs> uh, I uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, post-colonialism and your research in the Caribbean and how was every like how did you use all this empathy in your research working in education which is like I'm so deeply into health but you're in education so yeah yeah so my how do I answer this? I think it started with it started it starts with my personal values and interests, which if I had to bring it down to like two things, I would say it's authenticity and courage. I think I can do many things, but if I'm not abiding in the space of authenticity and courage, then I'm out of alignment with my best self. And that's like all I ever try to do is just be my best self. Um, so in inclusive design, cause we were in this program, I, I'm applying the authenticity and the courage to my work because the way I, the way I see it is for me, I'm researching, I'm writing, I'm designing about things or social causes that feel right to me. And that maybe in some way require me to do the unpopular. So throughout this process, I came to discover that I am kind of a a decolonizing designer, which I never thought I would be. (laughs) I started the MRP process trying to do something that seemed interesting, but it didn't feel right. So I was like super confused and then like super stressed because like everybody had their their idea and I didn't have mine and I didn't know what I was going to do. And it seemed on the surface that it was cool, but I knew for me it didn't feel right. It didn't feel like I was doing something that required me to be 
bigger than who I am. It, I didn't have to step back and allow something bigger than myself. And so when I finally stumbled on my project, which is unlocking creativity in the, in the Caribbean and bringing creative thinking into education, I went about it in a way that I thought like I could just create a space for creativity. And then because of inclusive design is so rich in the, in the research that we have to do and how deep we have to go, I realized in examining the education system that I was brought up in, that I couldn't do that without decolonization. And I had zero interest in decolonization. I had zero interest in anything of that kind because I just thought it was going to be like so much theory that I have to go through and all this stuff that it's just like to even understand where we're at now requires an in-depth research of so much history. And I just thought that was going to be like way too much work. Um, but I couldn't do it without decolonization. It was just like smack in my face. So I had to get myself out of the way and exchange, <laughs> <laughs> and exchange myself with the other, and which is the rise of my more compassionate mind. And I had to try and problem solve, you know, how to bring more creative thinking into a space that is so creative, but doesn't produce creative, um, like opportunities. And that is, that is the nexus of a post-colonial society. Um, so it was a really nice discovery for me because decolonization is inherently inclusive, whereas colonization is exclusive. Exactly. Um, so it's very interesting to me how my project turned out, how I was able to find, I was able to use a design thinking uh, uh, process and work it into um, a toolkit that, that potential teachers and students can use just to generate creativity or creative thinking in their own way, in their own time, um, without conditions, but how they see best for themselves. And, um, and, and also able to, in a way, platform a lot of the history that isn't really known. Um, I think you know, being from the Caribbean and not living there right now, it's a place that's very much like, it's like the perfect vacation destination for everyone. <laughs> but, but that's just like, it's like a hashtag, I live where you vacation, this is an actual thing. But that's just like one layer. And I think that it's so important that people do the work to show that this is a multifaceted place with many, many layers. And while you can see it as just a vacation destination, this there's so much more here that there's not only to offer, but to be uncovered and to improve like everywhere in the world. Um, and so for me, like moving forward, 
not necessarily stuck to education. I think education is super, super important because when you look at industries worldwide, like the there's the lag time, like the lag time for an iPhone is like, I don't know, nine months. I don't know when they come up with a new one, like every year or something. But the lag time for education, not just in the Caribbean, but anywhere is 50 years. So that's, that's how long. So like so many generations go through an education system before it gets reformed. Yeah. And that's why there's so many people that get lost and yeah. it doesn't work. So I think that um, it's just super important to pay attention to a space that has that issue, but also um, thinking within the Caribbean context, what I was kind of proud of that I didn't know when I started, but I, I feel proud now is that when I was working with my advisors in the Caribbean, um, you know, they said to me, the problem with the Caribbean is that we don't have the research for the education space, like a scholarly work in an academic sense. Mm -hmm. it, it's like, it's, it's kind of, it's an, it's, as I was saying, an unpopular subject, right? Mm -hmm. It's not the cool, it's not cool or sexy at all. <laughs> so if you went to scholarly research for the Caribbean, you'd find so much on history, like so much on economics and all these kind of things, but education doesn't really have that, that volume of work. And so I felt, um, I felt I was really pleased that I was contributing to that space. And it's kind of, given me a new motivation moving forward to do something in my life that's like bigger than me. So no one might ever read it until like I'm dead, but <laughs> someday there will be like a body of work that I contributed to for a very important set of people. I'm sure it is. <laughs> So um, I was thinking that maybe because of the time we can answer some questions. I, I loved how you wrapped that up. And I think we, we covered the topics that we, were, we wanted to share to, tonight. And so what about uh, answering some questions? Monte, do you have them or do you? Yes, do you have um, I have one that is if you can give us an example of a process in inclusive design. Like, I know that um, our the, the minority you are designing for have to be part of all the process and all the creation, but how you do that? Ah, well, we, we can go a little, um, Soya, descri uh, Soya described uh, design thinking and I described experience-based school design. I could do it like a, more quickly, maybe more like in the, the, the steps. So just um when, when we talk about inclusive process there, there are many that are inclusive and i think and you will correct me so yeah the meaning of that is when designing include the community you are working with as designers so this means that if i'm designing for older people maybe uh i'm designing something that is uh, for the community of elderly people, I include them in my design process. This is, I, uh, in my research, there, they, I will not 
be, be just like a researcher and uh, there will be the researchers like there won't be that division we will work together yeah and there are many uh, uh many ways of doing this like they could start fr from the start the beginning of the research they could even be the researchers themselves of what they need and like Soya said, we become facilitators of that. Yeah. And that is the meaning of participatory design or co-design. What I understand is that all of these are like children or they all come from ethnography. Like there, no one created the, like a black line or anything. The inclusive part was in the part of including them in the designer. But the research processes are based on ethnography from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then in the, the one that I used or are more familiar with, that is experience-based co-design, the steps are uh, when, when you do the research, you add this, uh, you engage with the users and staffs. In this case, this is uh, how it was, uh, uh, the theory of how it, it can be implemented in the health sector. So when designing for health, you not only include the patients, but also the staff in a system way of thinking. And they will become with you, the researchers and the designers. Mm -hmm. And emphasize, it's not that we, we, like in my case that I worked with children, I, I didn't have to make them designers, but by with tools or workshops where they could draw and in conversations, they could be open-ended or not, or, or uh, very relaxed conversations. They start to design, and then uh, a prototype is done. And what is very, very important is that they have to evaluate the prototype, and they are the ones that evaluate it and correct it. And then it. I don't know what you want to add to this. So, what do you think of my answer? <laughs> no, I thought your answer was spot on. <laughs> Don't have anything to add to it. It was really good. Yeah, like maybe yeah. So it's like designing with and for a community. Yeah, yeah. Also, if there is a product or an object or a campaign, visual campaign that you can refer to, that it's like a case of success um, of inclusive design. So we can have like a, an example for. You told me about the ramp. Yeah, that is that is that that is that's a super common, and I don't think like everybody can think of it in their mind. Mm -hmm. That is true. And me and Soya were thinking today about exercises. So one 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 simple way of understanding is that well, what the way we've been taught in our classes is that you know when when if because of marketing and everything and these theories that always told us to design thinking for the majority or and the majority calculating it in clusters would be like the 80% of the population, what they need. But this means that you're leaving 20% out of it. So normally, as some, not all, but some designers do their work or design is thinking, starting from that 80%. And a way of designing inclusively would be designing far, 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 far from the, the le, le least represented people or the people that ca can not use your design. And that is something that, I, that is important. Like when you, when, you, uh, when you test your prototype, don't test it with the people that are comfortable or are represented. 
you use with the people that are more challenged and there's where innovation is. So in a, an exercise, a, an, an example would be the ramp for that was intended for wheelchairs. But then, so you, you start designing for the, the people that are have less access to a street maybe. But when you, when you think of that ramp, then that ramp not only benefits the, the elderly or the people that are uh, in wheelchairs, also the, the women that, or men that are with a cradle or people that have problems in their knees but are not necessarily in a wheelchair or people that are overweight. Or So when you design from far back and think of the least, the person that would be more complicated in a design, it will benefit all. Yeah. And a way to understanding is that today, if, if it is that we are in a point of privilege and we are part of this 80%, that's not guaranteed. <laughs> and I'm sad to say <laughs> that we won't be in any day part of the 20%. So that design will last longer if it's thought for the most uh, marginalized people or the persons or individuals that will have less, uh, more problems interacting with your design. Yeah. I'll just add to that, that another example that I commonly use, um, which is a more, I think, organic to inclusive design example is like closed captioning, basically, mm -hmm. um, which started for audible reasons. But now, like, we're going to use be able to use it for translation um, on this session uh, <laughs> for the language translation. Um, and that's just a very like small example of a design that's more inclusive that started for one thing, but it can spread to many, 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 many other users. Thank you. Also, Andrea Flores ask Soya about your your project it's an it's for education it's a research project but it has a final product what's the last object yeah so my project is you can find it online at thisiscontexture.com and it's an education project where i worked with a group of teachers at a school in barbados to uh, to design a toolkit that involves design thinking that they could use in, in classroom sessions. And so the final product, it's the toolkit, which is downloadable and you can use it for um, any, you can test it if you'd like. Um, and it has two parts, a manual and uh, activity cards. Um, yeah, that's basically it. Releasing control of the design process is a hard thing to convince people to. In our individualistic society, it's natural to want the power, to ensure that your work reflects well on you as a person. Especially in the corporate environment, companies have trouble playing the role of facilitator and withholding judgment. The profit motivation is always judgmental. Are there ways you, Tania, in your work with Sodio? 
and Yu Soya in your work at HarperCollins have found success in helping others reduce the role their ego plays in the design process, how they can design with less judgment and with more emphasis on elevating the experience of the user. It's very, very, it's, it's challenging. Uh, I found that my personality is quite pragmatic and I tend to be objective by nature. So maybe for me, it's been a little bit easier, but I have found that um, over the years in my 10 year career so far, the newer designers and the younger designers are much more attached. And then as you get more experience, you, you give up more control. Um, I think that one way to motivate them to give up control, I have found is creating like creating a feedback loop for them. So what I mean by that is engaging them in showing their work to um, the non-designers or to the users more than they would like to because sometimes like as designers which is an artistic practice we can like want to get it perfect and you can like spend forever on it but i have found that to engage them in uh showing their work to get constructive criticism as much as possible and continuously then they start to um see more like what what is working and then what is just their interpretation or their personal um, projection onto the work. Um, how do I help people reduce their ego? That's really hard, <laughs> but sometimes it happens um, throughout the process. I don't know about you, Tanya, what do you think? Well, I think I think I'm gonna say something obvious and maybe a cliche, but but it, it has worked. Like by setting start starting by an example, like starting with you, like with me, that is not hard. Lowering my ego for starts, right? So if in the beginning I don't put myself like I have all the knowledge, but then including mm -hmm. the the client as part of the process as well, like because we have had like uh, some runs on inclusive design projects in Saudi, like very briefly, we were just starting. So when we, when we start, when we have a social project or we're researching something like that, then you start by yourself lowering down your ego and saying like, this is like an adventure, mm -hmm. but what, whatever may arise will arise and we will not get tightened by the by the the process right so me as a designer might feel uncomfortable with what the user needs and you as a client also but if we get in this like if we, if we get into this adventure together and, and compromise and, and and really think put forward or believe that the user comes first then this is something that will happen so i guess that would be more like a filter the client from the beginning will will uh, tighten up, you know, and start talking weird and say like, "What do you mean?" Like, and then you will see that that might be a client that will have more difficulty in in sharing the power with the with the user. But but when you if you react in the same way, then 
he'll feel more defensive, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes I tell in Sodio when we talk about that, that sometimes uh, designing is like psychology. Like you have to, you have to, to, to juggle many things. And, but with the example, and also when, when the, the people that design with us, the, the other designers that are designing in team together with me, if they see me act, react like that, they will react the same way as Soya says, when you're younger and I was, and I am still, in the, that it's hard to release that. And because you get attached to, to your design and having compassion to yourself and the client and the others that are designing. And then you say, say this would be hard for all of us, but in, in the beginning, where, where are we, what are we doing? What, what is the purpose of this project again? So it'd be like uh, defining a goal and then really committing to it. And if it is to represent something else, and there would be, and there are, and there will be sometimes where a product or a service that is high, as these graphic designers, we are hired and the client won't, won't design. And you have to be compassionate too and say, that doesn't mean he's bad or not inclusive. It's mm -hmm. just that it is. And you can decide if you engage with it or not, or if you engage how, and what are your limitations as a designer or a community partner. Like in, in our case, maybe if we, we do want to become inclusive designers. Then if that is the project, well, I advise to not to, to not engage if it will not be till the end. Yeah, that, that is. But if it's a graphic design project, then you may have like the chance. But if you're putting the stamp of inclusive in your project, I am a, a little bit radical in that. And that's my I would say. Do, do it well or do not do it because you may harm more and if you're just like in a graphic design stage like I was then observe learn and little by little you will like have the courage to say no I will not engage in something that is not inclusive because this is my belief thank you for listening to our very first inclusive conversations Inclusive Conversations is produced by Manifold, an inclusive design consultancy, and you can find out more about us on our website at hellomanifold.com.